Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, I am Elisabetta Zanon, Director of the NHS Confederation's European Office, and I'm standing under Ron Kwan Schumann at the very heart of the EU institutions in Brussels. This big building behind me is what everyone in Brussels knows as the Berlaymont building. It is here that in just a few weeks the Brexit negotiations will take place and that the business of the UK leaving the EU will become real. when we leave the EU about the future rules and, and standards that we set behind clinical trials and that ability to share data, to perform clinical trials across borders. I think there is an issue about the less qualified staff in the health and social care sector because they really are the bedrock of the service providing frontline care to patients. We need to make sure that we can staff the whole of the health and social care sector and not just the very highly skilled in doing it. The NHS is the largest employer in Europe. It has significantly benefited from European staff who moved to the UK to work for the NHS or for the social care sector. The NHS has also benefited from EU funding programmes and patients in the NHS have benefited from earlier access to drugs and health technologies thanks to European regulation at European level. What is going to happen once we withdraw from the EU in all these areas? To answer these and many more questions, we are launching a new podcast from Brussels to help keep you informed about Brexit and its impact on the NHS. Today, I'm going to be talking to Kate Link and Sarah Collen, Senior Policy Managers from the NHS Confederation's European Office. Good morning, NHS European Office. Oui, je vous écoute. Non, désolé, uh, madame est en ligne. I'm Kate Ling. Um, I'm a senior policy manager at the NHS European Office, and my particular area of expertise is workforce, but also an element of trade and matters to do with the internal market. The two key issues have to be migration, um, because that was one of the biggest issues to come out of the uh, referendum. And the second issue, which is intimately related to the first is that of our relationship um, with the single market and the degree to which the UK will have access to the EU single market. The government have made it absolutely clear they keep referring to saying that we want to continue to be able to recruit the best and the brightest to work in the National Health Service. I think there is an issue um, which certainly the NHS European Office, um, the NHS Confederation, has drawn to the government's attention about staffing, if you like, the, um, the, the less qualified staff in the health and social care sector, the bands one to four, because they really are the bedrock of the service, providing frontline care to patients. And we are making the case, I think, very clearly to say that we need to make sure that we can staff the whole of the health and social care sector and not just the very highly skilled end of it. 
Of course, there may be implications for the economy, but uh, let aside the economy. Do you also think that the current uncertainty could create some difficulties for the NHS at the time we need clarity and policy direction and any, let's say, risk of instability could be potentially creating extra difficulties for the NHS? What we're hearing at the moment, anecdotally, is that staff who are from the EEA who are currently working in the NHS are understandably worried about their futures because simply not knowing what's going to happen or what their rights are going to be in the future, whether they'll be able to stay in the UK long term, what about their pension rights, social security benefits, the acquired rights for their spouses and their families, all of these sort of issues which would concern anybody. And it's very sort of unsettling for people not to know what's going to happen, which is why we have been advocating the right for people who are currently working in the health and social care sector to remain. And what about the weak pound? Has the reduction on the value of the currency had an impact already on the um, attractiveness of jobs in the NHS? There is some indication that there may be a downturn in the numbers of new people arriving from EEA countries so that it may be more difficult for NHS organisations to recruit from elsewhere in the EEA in future. We're going to be watching that trend very closely to see whether you know whether that turns into a problem. So for example trusts which have historically recruited from other parts of the EU whether they will have difficulty continuing to do so. Let me mention the working time directive. <laughs> This is a typical example of uh, European legislation which is considered to be uh, problematic to the healthcare sector, uh, not only in the UK, across Europe. What do you expect to happen to the Working Time Directive once we leave the EU? The problem with the Working Time Directive is not so much the directive itself, which has very sensible provisions, such as limits on the total uh, number of hours that people should be expected to work every week and entitlements to annual leave and rest breaks. These are things that we've been very clear that we wouldn't want to get rid of. We don't want to turn back the clock to a time when doctors were working um, you know, very, very long hours every week, which was bad for their health and safety and also bad for patients. So I don't think there's any desire to turn the clock back in that way. The problem with the directive really has been some of the court judgments, some of the case law which has unhelpfully, if you like, added to the burden. So, for example, judgments which have um, restricted the amount of time that doctors can spend on call in the hospital and which has been very, very, very rigid and very inflexible about exactly when they can take compensatory rest for rest that they should have had but which they've missed because of work intensity. Those are things where we think that there could be sensible changes, basically to introduce a little bit more flexibility as to exactly how and when working patterns can work. Um, But in the UK context, in order to have any of that flexibility, it would require, I think, reopening and looking again at contractual arrangements. So it's not just a simple question of, you know, we can go ahead and we can change the law. A lot of collaboration happens clinician to clinician or researcher to researcher and and I think there are some trusted relationships across Europe and across the world that that won't be 
changed by Brexit. Sarah Collen is Senior Policy Manager in the NHS Confederation's European Office, specialising in research and innovation, including EU funding for health research and pharmaceutical legislation. There's been some specific areas where the NHS has really been um, very visible and very uh, almost leaders. Um, one area is, is paediatric research. The, the problem with paediatric research is that it's quite difficult, quite difficult. No country can um, create drugs or develop drugs in isolation because uh, it's, there, it's a population where you need to work cross-border in international partnership. And previously, there were lots of barriers to, to, um, to developing drugs for children in, in, in isolation. And Europe has helped with the, the regulation, the rules and the standards behind, behind the development of those drugs. What, what has happened is also the, the, the UK has received a lot of funding for working with European partners to develop drugs specifically for children. So these were usually drugs that were already on the market, but only for adults. And the, U the UK participated, I think, in the last uh, framework programme, the EU framework programme. There are about 1920 trials that, that were conducted to develop marketing authorizations or, or drugs specifically for children, not just for adults. So with the right formulation, the right levels for children. The UK was involved in in every one of those, and, and that means that our NHS clinicians were involved as well. Will we be able to continue to participate in these programmes and initiatives in the future? What is still uncertain is our, the UK's relationship with the EU health research programmes, or the funding pots going forward. Now, the UK has done very well it's always got it out more than it, it's given in to those funding programmes. Theresa May has indicated that, that the government is willing to, to pay into European programmes going forward, and, and one could assume that research would be one of those programmes, um, but, that, but that will have to be part of the negotiation process. If uh, we negotiate to be part of this programme, but uh, we are no longer a member of the EU, we will be less influential, nevertheless, in terms of shaping uh, priorities and objectives for these different initiatives. Do you agree? It does depend a bit on the negotiations, but all of the existing examples of the associated partnerships that we have uh, suggest that, yes, that will be the case, because those countries that are outside of the European Union and pay into the programme so that they can be part of the programme, they have no official influence over the strategic priorities. And it, it should be noted that I think the UK has done very well in strategically uh, planning around the health and research funding pots to date, that we've, we've really been able to put our views across very eloquently and very well, and that, that many of our priorities are reflected in this this funding scheme. 
let's move now to um, regulation at European level. In London, there is the European Medicines Agency. Medicine which are approved by the European Medicine Agency can be placed everywhere in the EU market at the same time. Jeremy Hunt recently indicated that uh, after Brexit, we will no longer be part of this uh, European Medicines Agency approval system. What implications this could have for patients and their access to new drugs? I think there could certainly be some delays for NHS patients. There will be a number of issues that need to be resolved. The EMA will most likely need to be, or highly likely, need to be relocated from from London, and that will put some logistical delays on the organisation itself. So we just have that, not only do we have that to consider, but also the fact that um, pharmaceutical companies prioritise the EMA and the FDA because they're the biggest markets in the world. So um, if we use the example of Switzerland, which has a smaller market, a different regulatory system, we can see from their example that they have about six months delay between the European marketing organ authorisation and, and their Swiss marketing or authorization because drug companies prioritize the bigger markets first. To develop new drugs, uh, of course, it's necessary to conduct the clinical trials first. And uh, clinical trials are regulated at European level. Will we continue to be part of this uh, regulatory system at European level for clinical studies? There will be implications when we leave the EU about the future regulatory or the future rules and, and standards that we set behind clinical trials and that ability to share data, to perform clinical trials across borders. There's some, there is some shared infrastructure around clinical trials, about shared databases, and, and we would need to see in the negotiations whether we can continue perhaps to pay into that that infrastructure to continue to access the same system or not, or have our own totally different system. Um, that's something that will have to be decided during the negotiations. As we have heard, there are many areas of NHS activity which may be impacted by Brexit. The NHS was at the centre of the pre-referendum debate. It will be important to have our voice heard during the negotiation so that possible risks can be mitigated and opportunities emerging from Brexit can be maximised. If you want to be kept informed of development on Brexit, you can follow us on Twitter at nhsconfed underscore eu. You can also regularly visit our web pages, Brexit and NHS, and you can also sign up for our Brexit newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next time.